This episode of the Adoption Connection podcast is sponsored by our upcoming 30 Days of Hope. Last April, we spent 30 days going through our devotional Faith, Hope, and Connection with a whole group of adoptive parents in our Facebook group. And it was so great. We just day by day had discussions about each of the devotionals for that day. We've had a lot of people ask us to do it again, and we thought, what better way to start the year than to do it together as a group? So we're going to start um, fresh into the new year on January 1st with day one of the devotional. So it'll be really easy to figure out what the rest of us are doing. The days of the devotional will correspond with the date in January. There's 30 devotionals. This is a compilation of 30 entries from 30 authors, all foster and adoptive parents. And it's going to offer you a window into their own lives and families. Yeah, you're going to recognize yourself time and time again in their words because they are walking the same road that so many of you are walking. And there's really so much wisdom that they share. And I just loved it. We had a wonderful time creating this devotional and reading it together as a group is just a really powerful experience. So you're going to want to grab your devotional if you don't have one already, or if you'd like a clean copy, because there are journaling pages built right into the devotional. So you can do that by heading to the show notes for this episode or just searching on Amazon. It's available both in paperback and on Kindle. Um, Just go to Amazon and search for Faith, Hope, and Connection. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Lisa, welcome to episode 66 of the Adoption Connection podcast. Hi, thank you, Melissa. It's so fun to be here this morning with you. So I have a little question for you. You know, we're one week away from Christmas. How are you feeling about that? Um... I think I'm okay. Well, okay. Here's what happened. You know how we always talk about how we're terrible gift givers, gift yes. shoppers. And um, so much so that just a couple minutes ago, we actually thought there were two weeks till Christmas and there's really only one. So we're clearly really together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a podcast listener and I listen every once in a while to the, um, is it the big boo cast? Like with I think Melanie so. Shankle and Sophie Hudson. I don't know. For some reason, they crack me up and they remind me of my best friend and me. They did a two-part episode, two-part gift guide episodes back to back, like way back when, when people, normal people were thinking about Christmas shopping. So if you're still really stuck, you should listen to that episode, those two episodes, because when I finished listening to those episodes, I actually felt like going shopping for people because they gave such good ideas. Okay. That's really impressive. Can you think of one of the ideas they suggested that kind of stuck with you? Okay. It turns out it's super expensive because we checked it out because we were thinking about doing it for my father, but there's a Etsy shop that does custom bobbleheads. And when they explained it, I thought they were, you send a picture in. And so I thought they kind of like took this picture and kind of like pasted it into a sphere or whatever. I made a bobblehead out of it, but we went to the Etsy shop And they actually take the picture of the person you send and they hand craft, like hand mold, like almost out of Sculpey, a 3D sculpture of the person who you send and turn it into a bobblehead. So like I said, it's a pricey gift option, but it was super impressive. 
Um, but they also had really good ideas for like teens, which is great because I have no idea what teens are doing. Um, and good like hostess gifts, like, you know, great. They would make great like sister-in-law, mother-in-law gifts. I don't know. I was just super impressed. Well, that's great. I will try to listen to that because I need a little inspiration. So beyond Christmas shopping, we have a lot of other things that you and I have been talking about. And one of them is about today's episode. You interviewed uh, a friend, a therapist, about neurofeedback and adopted children. Do you want to introduce her to us? Absolutely. So Sarah Jordan is a counselor and a neurofeedback technician, I guess would be the correct title for her. And so I love that she has these two different modalities, and she actually has a couple other modalities as well, that make her really such a great professional for adoptive families to have, because we know that, you know, finding qualified people that really understand the nuances of our families, sometimes they're few and far between. Sarah has been working in the mental health field since 2005, and the last 12 years, she has been specifically specializing in neurofeedback with families that are healing from attachment issues and other types of trauma. She is so knowledgeable. And in the interview, she was really able to take the neuroscience of neurofeedback and really connect it to the specific issues that our families are facing. She works out of an office in Idaho near Boise. So anyway, I just thought she was fantastic. Well, I loved listening to the interview. I learned so much. She's a great teacher. She explains things really, really well. Sarah, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to talk about neurofeedback today, something you're really passionate about and something Mm -hmm. that we've used as our family too, as one of the tools in the toolbox. Um, We're going to talk a little bit more about kind of how complex that toolbox can be a little bit later, but can you start off by just giving us a brief overview of exactly what neurofeedback even is for those people who have never even heard about it before or who've heard about it and kind of haven't gotten a clear answer? You betcha. So um, one of the first definitions actually is biofeedback. Um, So biofeedback is an umbrella term, and it is just any time that you're making somebody aware of your biological processes and and then teaching you skills to change them towards healthier patterns, that's biofeedback. And neurofeedback is a specific type of biofeedback working with brainwave activity. Um, And first, we get to see what the brainwave activity is like doing an EEG, so we can actually see what's happening with the brainwave activity. And then we can actually train the brain and teach it to go into healthier brainwave patterns. That's kind of the the sum up of what it is. That's so cool. So what does that training look like? So obviously, the brain mapping, the you're talking about happens with an EEG, which some of us are familiar about. It's kind of like they, you know, kind of connect lots of little electrodes all over your head and it creates this visual of what's going on, which is really cool for those of us who are brain geeks like me, because it's nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's nice to kind of see all of that play out and see, it can be really helpful to see the brain patterns that may be precursors to what we're seeing as behaviors with our kids. Mm -hmm. So how does one exactly train brainwaves? 
Sure. So uh, I'll give you one of the most common examples that we see with, with the uh, neurofeedback that we do. A lot of people have overactive, what we call high beta activity. And high beta is going to be associated with a lot of anxiety, a lot of overthinking. Um, and so if we want to help a brain to not generate so much high beta, then we'll have somebody hooked up. Uh, and the, the brain map, like you were referencing before, before that gives us um, uh, protocols that we develop. And so we, we could know which areas of the brain exactly we would place a sensor on the head and then do a live reading of what's going on in that particular part in the brain. And if we want to decrease the amount of high beta, then whatever we're using as a feedback for the individual um, will have a response. And so usually what I'm using is a movie. So I hook up a kid and we're working with that one spot and we're reading the high beta activity that they're producing. And then um, if the brain starts to produce too much of it, then the movie will have either a fade out or a pause in it. And um, so what happens then is the brain learns that it is causing the movie to either fade out or pause and it will start to decrease the amount of high beta that it's producing. And over time, then the brain learns that it's actually easier to function without so much high beta. And so it starts to do it on its own outside of session. Oh, that's so cool. So what are all the brain waves? So we have beta, mm -hmm. like kind of what are they? And can you give us like a really do? quick primer of kind of how yeah. they yeah, interact with what we're doing yep. in real life? <laughs> So, um, so when we talk about brainwave frequencies, we're talking about how frequently does that wave occur in a second. So that's where it gets its name, brainwave frequency. So the very lowest brainwave frequencies are called delta. And delta is going to be associated with being asleep. Um, so babies, for instance, have a ton of delta. If we mapped a baby, they'd just be all delta. But it also forms all of our foundation. So, um, so having a good night's sleep is kind of like uh, doing a mini version of being a baby again. So it resets your foundation from which you're going to live the next day. Um, the next one is theta, and theta is associated with what we call twilight state. So as you're falling asleep, as you wake up and you have that kind of groggy feeling, that's going to be your theta. Um, theta is also associated with a lot of creativity. Um, and the next one above that is um, alpha. And alpha is associated with a self-soothing ability. That's the one that calms us down from stress and anxiety. Um, so the process of getting a good night's sleep actually starts with alpha. When you close your eyes, then your brain should shift into alpha, calm, all down, calm the stress down that you experienced that day, and then take you down into that really pleasant um, theta. And then you go down into that delta and get the fully restful night's sleep. Above alpha is your beta, um, and beta is associated with uh, cognitions. So as you're thinking, processing, problem solving, you're going to have a lot of beta. And then high beta is going to be kind of beta on steroids, um, and that's kind of a hypervigilant state, and we need that sometimes. If we're in a stressful situation, we need high beta. Um, above that is another one called gamma, um, and gamma I'm actually doing a little bit more work on lately because it is actually associated with a bonding and transcendence. So, so that's kind of a quick rundown. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. And we've talked a lot about brain mapping. And for those of you who are visual and are kind of curious what that looks like, we're going to have a bonus training that Sarah's offered to show us like a video of what a brain map is, kind of how to read it. There's going to be a download. So we will have all of that in the show notes. So when you, you know, stop driving or stop running around or chasing kids, hop over to the show notes. We'll have a link to that at the end and you'll be able to kind of even dig deeper into that if you're kind of interested. 
so you said neurofeedback is a part of biofeedback or one mm -hmm. way. So it's like, yeah. like the brain's version of a biofeedback. Within neurofeedback, are there different types of neurofeedback? And what do we need to know about that as we're kind of looking into this as a tool for our kids? Sure. So there's um, there's going to be a single channel where you're just working in one spot um, at a time for, for the brainwave um, activity. And that's usually the one that I'm doing. So that's more the traditional neurofeedback. There's another type of treatment called LENS. Um, it stands for Low Energy Neurofeedback System. And there's been some people who found a lot of success with that one. Um, that one is doing a reading, but also giving a stimulation at the same time. But it's a low energy stimulation. Um, another type of neurotherapy that we do that's based off of neurofeedback is called the neurofield. Um, and the neurofield is also a, a stimulation with that as well. It's significantly less than a cell phone, but it's kind of uh, molding for the brain or training it in a different way. Um, and I actually use both, both the neurofield and the standard neurofeedback. Okay, perfect. So when parents are thinking about this as a tool for their kids, what are the types of outward facing behaviors and or symptoms that might lend itself to neurofeedback? Like, obviously it's not going to fix all of our things, it's not going to, you know, magically zap some of the attachment issues we're talking about and all of these other things. So what does it do kind of, and what doesn't it do? Sure. Um, so one of the most common brainwave uh, dysregulations that I see with kids with attachment issues is actually a lack of delta activity, which is that very first very, really slow one. And what we found is that um, they're just missing some of that foundational regulatory piece for them if there was some early childhood disruption. So what you're going to see then with, with that kid is a lot of inner chaos that's manifesting outwardly. And so with the neurofeedback, that's one of the primary ones that I'm working on is trying to teach their brain to get back into that foundational mode. Uh, the brain has the capability to do it. It's just gotten so uh, trapped, if you will, in this fight or flight response that it just it stays stuck in it. So the neurofeedback helps to get it unstuck. Um, and another one, like I said before, the really common is the too much high beta activity, which is associated with anxiety. So anxiety symptoms, a lot of chaos symptoms, those are the things that, that the neurofeedback can really help with. Another one that comes up often, um, I don't know if other people have experienced this, but a lot of the kids that come in have been uh, diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. And when we look at their brainwave activity, it's actually not consistent with somebody who would typically be diagnosed with that. And so sometimes those, those symptoms of where they, they feel like they're all over the place isn't actually um, that they have ADD or ADHD. It's actually just more of that anxiety. And, um, and so we can work with the brain to start regulating that. The other really common one, um, that alpha, that self-soothing ability, most of the kids I work with are really lacking in their ability to, to generate self-soothing. And, um, and because they can't do it inwardly, then they have a hard time even accepting it from, uh, from parents who are supposed to be the ones that are teaching them that and because they can't do it themselves and they, they have a hard time getting that. So that's another one that we work a lot on. What about things like sleep patterns? Mm -hmm. Can neurofeedback kind of increase Absolutely. the ability to self, you know, like you were talking about, like that Delta is at sleep. So yeah. if we see a lot of sleep dis disruption. Yeah. Neurofeedback can be really helpful with that. 
And then if it is more traditional ADHD, can neurofeedback kind of help with that focus and concentration, kind of keeping the brain in the pattern that it needs to be at the frequency it needs to be for that like thinking work? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, there's, there's been a lot of studies um, with neurofeedback. The one that's had the most studies is ADD and ADHD, and it's, found, it's been found to be very effective. Okay. So it's so interesting, right? Because sometimes we see our kids with these behaviors and like a lot of other things, behaviors are just symptoms. And so it's so fascinating to me how, you know, an EEG can kind of tell us, oh, well, this child can't focus because Mm -hmm. he's always anxious or he can't self-soothe. This child really is struggling with the actual frequency that you know, is focus and concentration. And so really understanding kind of the foundational needs is so huge because if we treat all the behaviors the same, but they're from different yes. foundations, then it's totally, we're, you know, barking up the wrong tree, really. That is a very, very good point. Yep. And that's why I think that, that there, there's some neurofeedback practitioners that don't do the mapping. They just go off based off of symptoms and they've had good success with that. But I'm, I'm someone that I, I need to see a map. So I know exactly what is causing the symptoms that we're seeing. Yeah. Do, now what's like the time frame for something like this? Like, you know, I know a lot of parents are in desperate places, right? And they're like, just fix yes. it, fix it fast, fix it fast. But if they start to explore neurofeedback, kind of what is the length of treatment? I know it's probably depending on the kid, but you know, yeah. what can we kind of expect? Like this is like, not like a one session thing, or is it like a year long thing? Can, can you give us kind of a range? So the ballpark figure that we give is about 40 sessions um, for a typical client. I, I have found just to be completely honest with it, with, with the kids that have um, significant trauma, um, you're probably looking at more like a year, um, uh, sometimes more, but, but that's, that's probably about right with that. And um, so, yeah, somewhere 40 to 60 and up to a year sessions. Okay. And like weekly, like twice a week, what does that look like generally? So I, um, so clients that are here in town, uh, just because it's more convenient for them to be able to just come weekly or a couple of times a week, that's usually what we do. Um, but we do have people that will come from um, outside of the state and will come and do a two week intensive with us. Um, and so with that intensive, we're actually doing two to three sessions a day um, with that for two weeks. And so what we have found, and again, there's, there's studies with this one, that it's, it's more important the amount of sessions than it is the frequency of sessions. In terms of results, is this one of those things where it gets worse before it gets better? Or do we kind of see, do you kind of see improvement right away? Yeah. Um, So anytime we go through a change process, yes, it's stressful, even if it's a positive change. Um, Typically, we see we start to see some positive changes within the first 10 to 12 sessions. And I actually like to do another brain map at that point. So we can actually uh, visually see how the the brain is responding to the treatment. there are some times that there that will hit like a plateau or there's some reversion that's happening. And that's, that's usually typical again of any kind of change process that we go through. It's a, the, the system just kind of checks with itself and says, I don't know if I really want to do this. Um, with the intensive, we do tell parents that uh, around Thursday, we call it angsty Thursday, um, <laughs> where, where the kid is getting their, their brain's getting a little tired and that's, we usually take a weekend off to just let their, their brain rest. Um, but there is, yeah, when you, when you're doing rapid change, sometimes there's uh, a little bit of angst. Yeah. 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 I get that. Uh So 
In terms of some of the other tools in the toolbox, things like EMDR, other body treatments, other brain type things, you know, there's listening therapies and protocols. Where would you place this? Like sometimes people are like, what do we do first? Is there something that, you know, would help us prepare for something else? When you're looking at a bigger picture and a treatment protocol, where, like how stable does a child need to be to do this? Obviously they need to be willing. You're not going to wrestle a kid, right, right, to do that. But, you know, is this something that allows us to have other, to have other therapies be more effective or like, where does this kind of fall in the treatment range? So that's a really good question too. I actually, um, as part of the, the intensive that we do, the two week intensive, we actually incorporate family therapy and EMDR, um, and heart rate variability training, which is another type of neurofeedback and even gut training that we do. Um, and so all of those things are, are important. Um, but we do have sometimes clients come in that their child is so dysregulated that we just go with doing the neurotherapy, uh, neurofeedback piece first. Um, the nice thing about the neurofield, that other uh, equipment that I was talking about before, that does not require um, as much of, of hooking everything up to be able to work with them. Uh, we, have, we have an emotional calming protocol that we do with that, that if, if someone's really dysregulated, we just start off with that. Um, so I, I feel like now I was a, I was a counselor, um, just doing talk therapy before I started doing neurofeedback and would work with clients and would have some success. I mean, it's a good modality talk therapy. Um, but I would feel like sometimes we get really stuck. And when I learned more about the neurological piece to it, um, that opened up new pathways for the clients that I was working with. And, um, and I feel like it's the same with, with everybody, you know, that, that if we can help the brain to open up more, um, it improves all the therapy that we do. So I'm biased, but I, I do feel like if, if the brain gets more um, stable, then it helps everything. Yeah, that's good. A good word. What's the minimum age that you typically work with when in terms of being able to kind of tolerate brain mapping and, you know, sitting for the therapy and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, youngest I've worked with is four. Um, that That's a little bit young. <laughs> um, the probably, probably around eight and on up is, is the easiest as far as getting them settled. And I mean, we're watching a movie for neurofeedback. And so most, most of them buy in pretty easily to that one. Let's go to therapy and watch a movie. I can see yeah. how that would be a, an easy yeah. sell, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, so talk to me about this tricky thing that we're all dealing with, which is insurance. Mm-hmm. Does insurance cover neurofeedback? And if it does, are there like things that we should know about how to get it covered or what types of insurance might cover it more likely than others? Um, yeah, so they, we are considered an alternative treatment. Uh, we don't quite fit the medical model that uh, most insurances go with, um, but we have had some success with with some insurances playing, paying some reimbursement. Um, a good good thing to know uh, is the code for that. I got it written down here. It's 90901. Um, so if you want to check with your insurance and see uh, what they would cover with that. Um, the insurances that have been the easiest for people to get some reimbursement is TRICARE and uh, Blue Cross uh, Blue Shield. People have had some success with that. Okay. And what about Medicaid? Because sometimes kids with foster in foster care or other things, is that like? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that one is, that one's 
decided every state has their own um, standard for that. Um, I'm in Idaho and Idaho uh, does not cover it. However, we have had clients that have gotten a single case agreement. Um, so just to give some people some verbiage with that, if, if, they're, if they're trying to trying to get Medicaid to help pay for that, especially if they are in the foster care system, see if you can get a single case agreement to work with a practitioner. Okay, thank you for all of those really practical things. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody in our community asked, we've been told that the child and the parents should do it together. Mm -hmm. Is that widely recommended? Kind of what's the thought process behind that and how do you guys handle that in your practice? So, uh, yes, if I can get a parent that'll sit down and, and let me do a brain map on them, um, I, I would love to do that. Um, just because, again, going back to that the, the, the kid is usually manifesting outwardly the, the chaos and the trauma that they feel inwardly. And that does have a tendency to uh, traumatize and affect the rest of the family. Um, and so if we can if we can do work on on everybody, um, there's there's more success with it. If we can have a whole family that'll come and, and do an intensive with us, uh, we love that. Yeah. What, um, what would you say to families in terms of results and like, what if it doesn't work? What are the like kind of guarantees? I mean, there's really never any guarantees in life, right? But how do we, how do you talk to families about kind of success and what they should look for? Mm -hmm. So, um, again, a ballpark figure, we say about 80% success rate uh, with our clients. And what we have found is that the, the ones that it's not really working for, um, there's some missing information somewhere. So um, not so much with the family, but sometimes we find out later that uh, somebody was was alcoholic or had some addictions that they were dealing with that they hadn't told us about. Um, but a lot of times uh, with the kids with attachment issues, they have a lot of secrets that they're, that they're dealing with um, and that they're keeping. Um, and we see that uh, anytime I see a regression in behavior with a kid, I always start asking about secrets because there's, there's something going on there. And so the brain sometimes will get really stuck in, in maintaining it. It's almost defensive in a way, if it feels like this is the way that I'm going to operate for the rest of my life. And we're, we're just going to keep doing this because it's helping me to survive. Um, there, there can be, um, yeah, just kind of that sense of stuckness or defensiveness with it. Yeah. Are there any counterindications for when you wouldn't want to look to neurofeedback as a solution? Well, I'm biased uh, with that, but obviously if, if somebody's not in a, a safe environment, um, then you need to make sure that, that they're, they're feeling absolutely safe before you, before you bring in yet another practitioner um, to work with them. Um, so I wouldn't start doing it like right after somebody comes into your home. Um, I would give them a chance to get settled um, and to, to get used to you and, and to, to start to learn that you are a trustworthy person before you introduce somebody else in. Yeah. What about any other medical conditions? Like what if the children have a history of seizures or other mm -hmm. things like that? That one is just, you, you just need to let the practitioner know um, that they have that history. Uh, there, there are certain things that we avoid when we're doing neurofeedback um, with working with somebody who has that history. Um, so that's just good information for us to know. But neurofeedback actually uh, in its infancy worked a lot with uh, seizure activity. Okay. Good to know. Mm -hmm. What would you tell our families just kind of about the, tr the transformations that you've seen in the families that you've worked with? Why are you so passionate about this? Uh, what's kind of like the hopeful message that 
kind of is wrapped up in a therapy like neurofeedback. Okay. That's a really good one. Um, yeah, I, I do this work because I love it and it's been really, um, heartwarming for me for me to see good successes happen uh where where a parent uh sees their child say yes mom for the first time ever or something like that or or be respectful or just not uh just not go into the same level of a temper tantrum that they've gone into before but i've also seen just some really powerful healing um just even in explaining uh what we're seeing in the brain map just even that in and of itself can help and be really validating uh, for people. Um, successes that we've seen where, where kids that weren't able to be around anybody else uh, can suddenly, not suddenly, I shouldn't say suddenly, but, but are able to be uh, at school even and to have success there and actually develop friendships um, with people. That's really awesome to, to see that. And just the level of calm that's able to come into a home when that the, the center of the storm is able to calm down. Um, there, there can be a really big difference with that. Um, and it's, for me, you know, I, I will sometimes get uh, calls back from, from people that have worked with me. I just, just recently, I, I talked with somebody who worked with me a couple years ago, and, and they were just checking in and, and letting me know that everything was going really well and that they were grateful to be here. That's, that's a really good experience for me to, to hear that. Yeah. So once you kind of see that success, um, you're, you know, we're talking 40 to 60 sessions or whatever kind of that initial thing is, is that kind of it or is there a continued kind of like maintenance situation? Some people it is. Um, so uh, for instance, with the, the intensive that we do, we always do a, a last, uh, brain map. So we can see, is this something that we need to keep addressing or do we feel like you need to take a break and see what happens? Um, typically the clients that come for an intensive, I, I don't actually usually see them again. Um, some of them will go back home and find a practitioner in their area that will just follow the same protocols that I was using and just see them once or uh, once a week or a couple of times a month um, for a while just to do that maintenance. Every once in a while, we'll have somebody that'll come back and do a follow-up one week intensive with us. Um, it's just, it kind of depends on on what you're seeing and is there any reversion? Are there any new traumas that come up for the child? Um, growing up sometimes can just be a trauma. Uh, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> as they go through puberty, there's stuff that comes up again. And so that that's sometimes when I've seen them come back. Yeah. So I love kind of how holistic your approach is and you have this history of being able to walk th- with families also using your skills as a therapist and counselor, you know, kind of create some support around the tool of neurofeedback. Um, My guess is that all practitioners maybe have that in their back pocket. So what are some things that families should look for if they're not local to you or they can't come and do a two week intensive as we're looking in our local communities for practitioners that are going to be a really good fit for our families who kind of have these like complex kiddos with trauma histories. Yeah, that's good. Um, so a good place to start is uh, the website bcia.org. So um, BCIA is the the largest um, of the kind of governing bodies uh, for neurofeedback. And so if you go to bcia.org, there is a tab on there um, that says find a practitioner and you can put in your zip code and then a search radius and then you can find somebody that is uh, specifically trained and certified um, through that organization. So that's a good place to start. 
Um, look for somebody who'll let you do a free initial consult. Uh, that's a good indication of a good therapist that wants to make sure they're a good match for you. Um, if they are willing to talk to another uh, practitioner, uh, like for me, uh, or talk to me, for instance, um, that's a good sign, too. That just shows that they're open to learning. And, and, uh, and even if they don't know much about attachment issues, are they willing to learn about attachment issues and talk to somebody that, that does? So somebody who's open to the process of it, um, find somebody who's specifically trained, yeah, through that BCIA website. Yeah, and so is it also possible or have you ever heard, you know, maybe of a practitioner who doesn't have that experience in attachment, maybe kind of working collaboratively with um, maybe a family already has like a attachment therapist or a trauma therapist who doesn't have neurofeedback as a tool. Maybe they're, you know, a talk therapist um, and then they could, you know, maybe work together yes. as a team to kind of do this. Yep. Absolutely. Create your dream, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, Sarah, thank you so much for all of that information. I know that it's really helpful for folks. We'll have in the show notes how people can reach out to you or your practice if they want more information. Um, I love the idea of the two-week intensive because like you said, you know, sometimes it's helpful to do something you know, that's not going to take a year. And then it also allows people to access to you who aren't you know, right down the street since you mm -hmm. have you know, a lot of experience and expertise in this area. Um, and like I mentioned, if you are listening to the podcast and you want to jump over to the show notes, um, we're going to have a little bonus training from Sarah on kind of what this brain map is. You may already have a brain map from another practitioner and have no idea what it means. And so this will help you decode <laughs> what information you have. Um, like Sarah said, it's really validating. At least it was for me to see in black and white or living color as it is, because it's really colorful, mm -hmm. all of the things that were going on in our children's brains, because with kids with that have invisible disabilities with these behavioral symptoms, it can be really hard to remember in our minds that our kids' brains really can't do some of the things that we're asking them to do. So Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. That was really a great interview, Melissa. Thank you so much for inviting her to be on our podcast. Now, you have a little bit more personal experience. We just were talking about a story from your own family. Do you want to share that? Yeah. So Grace did biofeedback, which Sarah mentioned at the beginning as being kind of a bigger umbrella of neurofeedback. And she used to call it her brain reset. You know, she would go for her brain reset whenever she was feeling extra anxious. Um, but one of the things that she noticed was that it really improved her sleep. And this is a young lady who came to us with super disrupted sleep and something she still kind of struggles with, but biofeedback for her really helped that. And we all know that if we're getting good sleep, then, you know, the trickle down effect for that is huge. Another caveat I'll say just in insurance and part of our story is it's worth it to ask your practitioner if there's any physical thing with your child that may be able to help you get coverage for neurofeedback, because neurofeedback is a, also a medical treatment for things like, um, like Sarah mentioned, epilepsy, um, stroke recovery, and also um, concussion recovery. So of course we can't make any claims here, but it's worth following up because if it can be billed as something physical, um, it will still help your child's brain and, you know, it might 
help you get through some of that insurance stuff to make it just a little bit more approachable from a financial perspective. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So our show notes this week have lots of things for you. First of all, if you go to the show notes, there is a place where you can request a bonus video about brain mapping, an extra interview that uh, Melissa did with our guest. Um, There will also be a link to the big BooCast episodes that Melissa shared. And don't forget that we're starting 30 Days of Hope in January. So in the show notes, there's a link to where you can get the book and to the group that you'll want to join so that you can walk with us day by day through the month of January and be encouraged and built up for the new year as an adoptive or foster parent. You can find the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash 66. So next week is Christmas Eve, and then the week after is New Year's Eve. And we didn't want to take two full weeks off of the podcast. Uh, so we thought we'd do something kind of a compromise and reach back into the archives from the early days of the Adoption Connection podcast and bring you two of our most popular episodes. So the first episode we're re-releasing is Giving Voice to Siblings, and in that one, I interviewed my daughter, Anna Rose, about being uh, a kid in a family and adding a bunch of new children through adoption, and it's a really uh, great interview. Hope you'll listen to that. And then the following week, we're re-releasing Parenting Teens and Young Adults with a Future in Mind, and that was a great conversation. So... You know, we were just starting out back then. We didn't have as many listeners, and we don't want you all to miss these great episodes. Yeah, and siblings and teens are probably the two most common topics we get asked about. So here, um, they'll be there for you to catch up on as you're going about your holiday chores or traveling with your family. So we will be back with new episodes on January 7th. Until then, have a very, very Merry Christmas, Happy New Year all the things. Um, We are praying that you find little pockets of peace throughout a season that we know can be really challenging. Yes. Merry Christmas. And we look forward to seeing you in the new decade, 2020. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.